right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Sally here. Got a great episode for you today with Michael Kaiser, owner of Sand Valley. Uh, he is the son of Mike Kaiser, who is uh, well known in the golf world and been a guest on this podcast before. We had a chance to to meet Michael or Mike Jr. Uh, when we were up at Sand Valley last month. Had an unbelievable conversation with him. His knowledge of golf course design and and putting together a resort kind of blew us away a little bit. Immediately, we walked away and said he would be a great guest on the podcast. We were right. Uh, tells amazing stories uh, about you know the Lido that's being built up there at Sand Valley and how Sand Valley came to exist and the history of it. It's it's pretty amazing. It's a pretty special place in the world of golf. We're thrilled to sit down and have a chat with him. No Laying Up is, of course, brought to you by Precision Pro Golf. Again, you might not you might have thought that our sponsor, Precision Pro, might not have been crazy about we put out a video with DJ Pai where he went out and played with no flag sticks in, you know, encouraging golfers to play to the center of the green. But if you watch the video closely, you'll see DJ used his NX9 slope rangefinder in all kinds of situations to measure everything. He gets creative, you know, gunning hills in the distance, trying to figure out what his numbers are to or what numbers he needs to cover, what numbers he knows he doesn't want to reach. Uh, you can measure hazards to avoid and, uh, you know, identify the safe places to miss. So right now, our listeners can add the NX9 slope to their golf bag for $20 off. If you use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout, you get $20 off the NX9 slope. You've heard us give you a million reasons why we love the NX9 slope, the slope-adjusted distances, the built-in magnets on the card. It's got six times magnification, crystal clear display, uh, and they offer the best customer service and care of any rangefinder in the industry. It's the only rangefinder that comes with lifetime battery replacement. So Add the NX9 slope to your golf bag. Go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 slope. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get to Michael Kaiser. I want to start with this. I think it can dictate a lot of our conversation today. It may seem like a silly question, but but what is, what is golf to you? I'm going to guess that we're pretty closely aligned on this, but I guarantee our answers to this question would be a bit different. So, so what is golf to you? Uh, it's a teacher. Did not know. Did not think you were going to go there. <laughs> well, and that would you know that it might be one of many responses, but that's what popped into my head uh, first. Uh, I, I think it, you know for for me, golf has taught me so much, and and what I think of first is it's it's my teacher. What has it taught you? What's what are some examples? Well, it certainly taught me patience and humility. Uh, it could be a cool game. And uh, I guess that's, that's two things that uh, it's taught me. But I think it's taught me about myself, right? If, if you have the privilege to play a great golf course, it sort of demands, you know, your, your own creativity and, and forces you to express your individuality. And in doing that, I think you, you learn about yourself. Uh, you, you certainly learn about other people when you, when you walk with them for two to four hours. You know, you learn about your your big state of mind as well as you know how you are and and uh, at, at the time. So I'm I'm rallying a little bit, but golf to me is first and foremost uh, a teacher, but certainly many other things as well. Well, because I think all, all of us, you know, in this game, we love the game, but also know that there's like a bit of there's a bit something of something bigger to it. You know, it's it, it does teach you a lot in life. I feel like a lot of life lessons I learned from junior golf, dealing with adversity and 
you know, how to treat people, how to talk to people and, and honestly just like experiencing nature. That's why I, I kind of thought you'd go somewhere more outdoorsy with that. Cause that's, that's one of the aspects that I, that I really love about it. But, um, for the listeners that aren't familiar, what, what is your golf background? I'm a, you know, I, I, grew, I, I learned the game when I was a kid, I didn't play it a lot. It was, uh, quite frustrating to me and I hadn't yet, you know, learned, uh, humility. So, so I knew the game, but I was more drawn toward other activities, you know, in nature, I was a big rock climber and mountain bike biker, mountaineer and ice climber. That's where I spent, you know, most of my free time growing up. Uh, at a trip to Northern Scotland, when I was maybe 13, I, I really got the bug and had a bit of uh, what, what you might describe as a transcendental experience with, with a nine iron. I was out there by myself. Uh, it was probably 1030 at night and uh, had one of those, you know, the, those moments in, in the flow or in the zone, however you'd like to call it, where sort of the, the boundaries between myself and the ball and the club and the ground uh slowly disappeared for a fleeting moment and i've been chasing that uh experience ever since that's funny i could picture there was a nine hole that i had with my dad one night when i was like in middle school where i, I still claim is the best i've ever hit the ball and i've never i've never i've never flagged it as well as i did in those nine holes that i've been chasing chasing that ever since but for for listeners that maybe aren't aren't as familiar with you know your your role in 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 the Kaiser Golf Empire if if I may if I may I may call it uh, can you give us a bit, a bit of a background on when you got involved in the business and what your uh, what your responsibilities are now? Growing up, I, I worked in in the business uh, starting with Dunes Club when I was uh, you know a kid cutting center lines with with my dad with uh, with our axes I, I guess is where I began I worked at Band and Dunes uh, throughout. Throughout college, I moved to Australia uh, after college to work at Barnboogle Dunes in operations. That's when I realized I loved development, and uh, my dad encouraged me to to go out on my own, away from golfing, but just to learn the uh, the, the craft, uh, which I did in Chicago for about a decade, uh, and then got involved in Sand Valley uh, Golf Resort. Uh, which my brother and I own, and we're now developing Sand Valley as well as a few new uh, exciting uh, projects we have uh, getting ready to start in the next couple of years. So, you know, I, I describe us as sort of a collective, you know, of producers, and you could think of, you know, a, a movie production where we work together and collaborate in different ways uh, depending on, on the project. Uh, and we're all, you know, have, have some involvement, but Sand Valley has been, you know, my baby for the last seven or eight years and where I've spent the vast majority of my time until the last year where I've been working on, uh, getting, getting two new, new sites out of the ground. We're going to get to that. And that's something that was a huge, huge takeaway for me spending a bit of time up there and meeting you, uh, last earlier this month, I guess last month now that as we go to record this, but I want to hear about living in Tasmania and then, uh, working with the Sattlers down at, at, at Barnboogle. That's a, one of the more interesting places I think I've ever been. And, uh, how far away from the world did you feel when you were uh, living in Tasmania? Well, I was certainly out, you know, floating on an Island in the middle of the nowhere, but I, I didn't have time to uh, put that in perspective. They, they worked me pretty darn hard. I think I got my first afternoon off after five or six months. So we were just, you know, it was an upstart. It was super fun. We were just uh, working around the clock to to get the business off the ground and to try to make it successful. And I, I just tried to keep my eyes and ears open to learn as, as much as I could from Richard and, and Sally, who are 
brilliant entrepreneurs. Their family became my surrogate family down under. The two of them were great, great mentors, and I just had an incredible year learning learning from them. And then, what what was what did you do at Bandon? What was your involvement at at Bandon? So Bandon was, uh, I think I said college. It was probably more. I, no, it would have been college. Uh, I started off in agronomy, and my first summer I did. Uh, we, we had a split shift, so we started agronomy about four thirty a.m. Then had a split and came back in the afternoon. So during the split, I worked outdoor services. I worked for Shu, who you probably know, uh, meeting and greeting our, our guests. And then after the second shift, I came back to close outdoor services. You know, wrap up. Um, I think that was let's see, ninety. Uh, it was probably my fresh freshman year of college or senior year of high school. So worked from a few hours before sunup to sundown, and then uh, drank a lot of beer. Uh, after that and slept for a few hours and did it all over again the next day. It was it was a great summer. One of the things that I learned was how much more the caddies made than me at the time. We, we The resort has a, a wage that's higher than minimum wage, but my dad made it an exception for me. Uh, so, you know, making four seventy three an hour was less appealing when I came back than, than caddying. So uh, in following summers, I caddied, you know, I'm teasing a little bit about the money, but it, it, as a, a young man, it was nice. Uh, but what was wonderful about being with a caddy was just listening to our guests and understanding what resonated with them. You know, what what were the moments in the round that were magical to them and, and what, you know, captivated their imagination. And then from the hospitality, you know, per- perspective, what were we doing right? What were we doing wrong? You know, every day was an opportunity to ask you know, as, as, as many questions to the guests as I could without irritating them and, and to learn as much as possible about our business through the eyes of our guests. So that, that you know, my big takeaway from Bandon was just that time I had with our customers. Generally, they didn't know that, you know, I was the son of the owner. And, and I got a pretty candid look at, you know, what we were doing right and what we could improve. So wait, your dad made an exception to pay you less than the wage that you were getting paid, but then than the rest of the staff. Yes, we. So we're <laughs> we're proud of of having a resort and dream golf minimum wage that's significantly higher than minimum wage. But he made a special exception for me uh, since I really had no idea what I was doing and didn't deserve more than four seventy three an hour. <laughs> Which, by the way, dwindles after you pay taxes. I don't know at four seventy three. You know, it ends up with, but even after ninety hours, it's it's not a whole lot. Just just enough to buy, you know, some light beer. Well, to that point, you touched on a lot of stuff I wanted to ask you about in terms of you know what the the feeling that guests get when they go to your guys' properties. And when did you guys know that this was going to be you know not only something that you know Bandon, your dad did you know, the Dunes Club and then Bandon. But when did you guys know this was some, this kind of destination, kind of remote location thing was something that you could replicate in a lot of other locations around the world? And was it was it something in particular that you learned at Bandon that really kind of set that off? You know, Barn Google probably confirmed that the model can you know can be applied to a totally different market. That's probably when when that was revealed. For me, it was it was Sand Valley. You know, the way we described the model up until Sand Valley was. Uh, sand site, genius architect, ocean. You know, those three ingredients are a great recipe that can be replicated. And uh, certainly we didn't have an ocean at, at, at Sand Valley. So uh, I guess 
you know, if we were to continue to distill that, it would be wonderful sand site genius architect. And, and that, you know, we find if you mix in with friendly hospitality and treat, treat our guests the way we would want to be treated is, a, uh, I don't want to say a formula, but a recipe that can be tweaked maybe at any, you know, sand site, you know, in, in the country, if not, you know, many places in the world. Well, tell me about the site of Sand Valley. And I want to talk a lot about uh, this location and what you guys have done so far and what the future plans are, because that was what had me especially uh, intrigued. First visit, I'd never been there. Obviously, I'd heard good things, but uh, I was kind of amazed at how how you described what made that land so special. Uh, it, it, some kind of connection back to like ancient history made me appreciate uh, the ground we were standing on uh, that much more. So I wonder if you could tell us the story of how how San, how Sand Valley became Sand Valley. It's always fun to you know start the Genesis story with you know how in the heck did all this sand get here. It's uh, it may be less remarkable when you're on an ocean because you expect sand, but when you're in the middle of central Wisconsin and there's nothing but uh, sand hundreds of, of feet deep, it certainly begs the question, you know, how did this get here? Um, so the, ours is tied to the glaciers and, and our glacial history in the Midwest. So as the glaciers retreated to the north and ground up, you know, these various you know, rocks and granite, uh, it left a sand uh, deposit, which would have uh, been flushed all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico if it weren't for a massive ice dam in present-day uh, Wisconsin Dells, Baraboo, Wisconsin, that held the water in place and therefore kept the sand in place. And over several thousand years, as the, the glaciers retreated and melted, uh, the size of that lake uh grew to approximately 2 million acres. Uh, eventually the force of that 2 million acres of, of water was too much for the ice to bear. So about 12,000 years ago in a single catastrophic event, the dam burst and in a 24 hour period, the force of all that energy carved out this beautiful uh, Wisconsin Dells, these rock formations about 45 minutes south of us. Um, the lake bed was all the sand, which which we now you know occupy a small part of. So that's how the sand got here. It blew around the last twelve thousand years, and uh, most of it is flat, as you'd imagine a lake bed to be. But for whatever reason, uh, these sixty to ninety foot dunes formed on about five or six thousand acres, right where we are here in uh, central Wisconsin. On top of that sand, this sand barren oak savanna prairie ecosystem emerged, which historically occupied probably 20% of Wisconsin, 20% of the U.S., 20% of the globe. And these barrens savannas are, are now uh, far more rare, less than 2% globally and a small fraction of a percent in, in Wisconsin and very rare in, in the U.S., uh, back in the 30s, all these barrens were seeded uh, over in red pine plantations. And that is what it had been until uh, we got here and began our restoration efforts. Uh, so what you see in these sand dunes are, are these beautiful prairies and oak savannas and exposed wild sand dunes. Uh, and, and that's what we imagine it would have looked like prior to um, it, creating this 
agricultural crop in the 1930s. That's it, huh? That's all, that's all you got on, on the history. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I can like, go. I can no, go deeper into it if you want to go down that rabbit hole. No, like I, I, yeah. I don't understand history, like how history is maintained, like how you could know that in 24 hours, it, uh, you know, the breaking of the dam did all that. And it, but that's like that. That's so amazing. Like that, those kind of stories just kind of blow my mind for. Uh, like it's, it's kind of what connects you to golf in Scotland. I think when you walk around and like you walk around the old course and, and know that people walked around this same area and played golf in like the 1400s or whenever that was, it just like, it, it makes you feel like your time spent, you know, in this game is worthwhile, right? That this, this, you know, ice carved out this sand, which made this turf, which made, golf it made a destination golf resort in the middle of wisconsin which is i think is it fair to say like a place that a lot of the locals like uh, that we talked to when we were up there could never have pictured that people would come from all over the country and, and you know all over the world to come travel to to play to uh to visit you know rome wisconsin do you hear that a lot we hear it all the time you know and that started on day one they, they thought we were a little a little nuts and you know now they, they have been huge supporters uh, of us since day one, but they they say it you know often, and uh, I think they're as surprised as as anyone. Well, give us an idea of of what it's like to transition you know wild terrain into a golf resort. And I, I'm talking from you know the legalese, the red tape, the you know the bureaucratic you know headaches, if you will, of uh, of you know doing stuff like this. Can you give us at least a, a, a taste of what it's like to to see something like this from beginning to end? Certainly. And, you know, it depends a lot on, on where you're building. Here in Wisconsin, there was very little red tape or bureaucracy to navigate. The town supported us and the county uh, tremendously from the start, uh, working with the state of Wisconsin and, and the DNR. Uh, th- there's certainly red tape to navigate, but they have been delightful to work with and, and have really helped us navigate through that. That's not always the case in, in every state or in every country, the fruition for various political or, or bureaucratic or environmental uh, reasons. So uh, sometimes, like in Wisconsin, that could take weeks or months to navigate. My dad's working on a project in California that's seven years into that process. Everybody knows Bandon took nine years to get approval. So that part could change quite a bit depending on where you're building. Uh, but once you get going, you know, here here in Wisconsin, uh, we have this agricultural, you know, pine that we have to remove and and, re- and not only remove that crop, but its roots and all the debris that's left behind. So we have pre-construction here that we might not have at Bandon or, or say, uh, the next site uh, that we're working on. After that, the, the you know, the building process is, is, is pretty straightforward. You know, the most of it's in the architect's routing and then doing some, you know, minimal changes to the topography and, and installing the irrigation and putting the final shapes in the greens and then seeding it. I guess there's a lot more, to, you know, there's the financial considerations and the planning. and But for us, everything starts with golf. We always ask the architect to find what they deem to be the greatest 18 holes on, on the piece of property. And once we've worked with them on that routing and it's approved, we put everything else into place around that. You know, we don't do a master plan first. You know, we adapt to the golf. I think a lot of developers will look toward the second course and the third course and where where's the lodging going and the restaurants and 
we always develop around the highest quality golf routing that we can and and then do the best to make everything else work as well as possible after the golf comes you know first second and third well how would you describe the two the two golf courses that uh, that are there currently there's there's two courses and then there's the sandbox the par three course which we'll get to as well but how would you describe sand valley and mammoth dunes individually well i guess i'll start with mammoth dunes because it's easier uh, to describe it, certainly mammoth in, in all ways. It's on a scale that is, I, I just can't, I, I mean, I think of maybe Yale or parts of Royal County down, but it's, it's big and it's bold. I think David, uh, took a big swing and, and hit it out of, out of the park. The fairways are massive. The dunes are massive. The greens are massive. It is certainly, you know, mammoth in all ways. And it's, it's really, you know, resonating with our guests. And, and I give David, credit for doing something that is uh totally different and uh maybe never never been done before you know sand valley is you know corin crenshaw are so great at sort of the seduction and playing with your heartstrings throughout the round and creating nuance and subtlety that you know i'm convinced i'll be studying sand valley my whole life and, and only begin to get to know it if I'm lucky enough to live a long life, it certainly has big, beautiful sand dunes um, and and is stunning. Uh, I think really where where it shines is its you know its its green complexes and and the variety of ways that you know we were talking early on about how in golf it gives you a chance to express your individuality and and, and any one of those greens there's almost an infinite number of ways to. Uh, play the shots and to recover and, and they give you those choices and, and allow you to, to, to do things your way, which I think is really, really neat. So that's my best crack at what's, what's different ab- about them. No, that's great. That gave me a lot to react to there. And I kind of wanted to start with mammoth as well, because I, I want to, I've got, I've been very fortunate to see a lot of golf courses, a lot of really special places. And I walked off mammoth and I don't mean to say that it's a perfect golf course. It's not, that's, it's not my favorite golf course I've ever played, but I walked off with just like kind of my mind blown as to why golf isn't a lot more like that than it is the rest of the world. And I've said this to a lot of people that I've asked about it. I said, golf should be like the scale of hard golf courses versus easy golf courses is totally flipped from how it should be. Like 80% of golf should look more like mammoth. Balls should funnel onto greens and the best players should have to travel far and wide to find golf courses that are supreme challenges for them. And I feel like it's 80% difficult, 20% easy, and that should be totally flipped. And it doesn't mean to say that Mammoth isn't challenging. Like it, it is, we are, we were uh, four, six handicaps or better. And we had one of the most fun matches I can ever remember playing. We made 13 birdies and an eagle on the back nine. And there's three par fives. There's two drivable par fours on the back nine. And it was just a total blast, and we wa- we all walked off with scores we were very proud of. And I was just left to you know wonder like why isn't golf a lot more like that? And I'm I'm, I'm just curious if that's a reaction you get from a lot of guests. Yeah, it certainly is, and we don't have a, a good answer to why why golf isn't you know more like that. One thing that holds all all the or binds all the dream golf courses is that they are playable and we designed them for, you know, the retail golfer, the, the scratch to 18 handicap or 22 handicap. So I think compared to most of the courses that have been, you know, built uh, since the second you know, world war, our, our courses are, are, are playable 
for most golfers, but Mammoth, I think, stretched or pushed that boundary of what it is playable. And, um, and it's really resonating with people. And I think it'll be interesting to see how, how golfers or, or other developers and architects respond to that. But the, our guests have certainly spoken and, and they like it. Uh, they enjoy it. A quick break to check in with our friends at Whoop. Uh, this is not the first time I've made this confession, uh, but I have, I have to confess, I've let my Whoop die for probably longer than I'm, than I'm comfortable, uh, or I should have been comfortable letting it die. Getting it back, getting back in the flow of things, keeping it charged, it's picking back up on my habits. I kind of had figured, eh, I've kind of learned what I need to know about my body. I've probably, you know, I, I don't know if I need to, you know, keep it up to date every day. I was wrong. It's giving me really red alert numbers in terms of my recovery, my sleep. I've been tossing and turning a lot. Uh, you know, I've been in bed for a lot, many hours, but it's showing me how much time I'm spending being awake. I probably need to change up some of my habits. Uh, I need to cut out some alcohol. I need to cut out sugar before bed. The Whoop gives you personalized insights like all of this stuff. And again, I've worn this thing for well over a year. I'm still learning how my body responds to things and learning that there are no shortcuts to getting a good night's sleep, getting rest. And a good night's sleep does not just mean getting spending nine hours in bed. Your heart needs to come to a rest. Your heart rate variability needs to go up and down. Again, this is tip of the iceberg as far as personalized insights that Whoop gives you into how your body is aging, how your body is reacting to the everyday stresses you're putting on it. Uh, and we haven't even gotten into the physical activity related stuff related to Whoop. So Whoop.com, promo code no laying up for 15% off uh, your subscription to Whoop. I cannot recommend this product enough. I will be keeping it charged and will be changing some habits. I will check back in with you later this month with an update on that. Let's get back to the podcast. You know, just in talking with the caddies too, they they seem to say, you know, it's kind of like uh, there's maybe some more intrigue on Sand Valley and that if you were going to play a lot of golf, you'd want to play Sand Valley just to kind of try to solve the puzzle as you insinuated there. But guests come and shoot a great number, shoot one of their better numbers on, on Mammoth and fall in love with that. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think, like I said, for a lot of people that don't get to play a ton of golf, you know, there's a lot of reward that comes from watching your ball go closer to the hole than it does go further away. But what uh what what was it what was it like I guess you know and I, I attended a, a couple years ago at the PGA show, McClay Kid and uh, and Bill Core were there talking about the opening of Mammoth and whatnot, and McClay Kid loves to make the joke of how important it is to go second at one of these resorts. Can you speak to what kind of advantages uh, someone has uh, going second and him being the first one to design the first Bandon course? Uh, why he was maybe a little envious of some of the guys that got to go after him at Bandon. Well, I always tease him. I know, you know, when he says that, when he, I wasn't there, but I, I saw that at a panel, uh, you know, he talks about having something to react to, right? Within this topography, wh what does he feel works on Bill's course and Ben's and what doesn't work? So you, you have something to respond to and follow. But I tease him because, you know, I think uh, the ultimate reason he, he, he likes going second is we have this beautiful mammoth bar uh, that he could come into for lunch, right? He could grab a steak sandwich and, uh, and a beer and uh, a cheesecake. Uh, he and his team certainly loved our cheesecake. Whereas, you know, when Bill Core was out here, if I remembered to drop an apple off, you know, by one of the greens that he was, you know, floating, uh, it would be a good day. And uh, he would have to uh, remember to bring cranberry uh, bread from the the uh, convention center hotel in Wisconsin Rapids, half an hour away. So, uh, I think that the reason to go second is once we've built out this uh, these restaurants and hotel rooms, 
sure is a lot more comfortable uh, for, you, for David and his team than uh, than to be the first when there's you know a shipping container and and not much else. Can you talk some about the process of deciding on a design team? And you know, I, I think we can kind of bridge this into you know a question I wanted to ask as well is why why does it seem like you know Bill Core, uh, Tom Doak, and Gil Hance and uh, and Ben Crenshaw, of course, with Core. Why does it seem like they tend to get a lot, a lot of the work, uh, almost more work than they can handle? I know we talked about this when we were up there some, and your answer on that was pretty interesting. Well, just to use one of them as an example, uh, Bill Core and, and Ben Crenshaw are at the top of their game. You know, like like other like the other brilliant architects you mentioned, they're endowed with some pretty incredible talents, but they've cultivated those over their careers. And they're relentless in their pursuit to get better. It's really hard not to look to them just because they're so darn talented. And that's hard for you know young architects who are trying to break out. They also have they're sort of all-star teams. And again, this could be said about you know the other architects you, you mentioned, but I mean if you look at Core and Crenshaw, their their teams are so loyal and and have been with them for decades. Dan Proctor, Dave Axlin. Jimmy Craig, those three guys all worked at Sand Valley. Rod Whitman, right? I mean, he, he's each of those are architects who have designed their own magnificent golf courses, and they're out there designing and shaping for Bill and Ben. So their teams are just so deep. You know, that's in part that's because they get great sites, but I think it's first and foremost because they're incredible human beings and they treat their team. Um, you know, extremely well, and, and and their team adores them and looks forward to staying with them uh, from project to project. But to back up to your original question, how is somebody selected? Um, it is hard not to reach out to, to Bill and Ben first, but I, I think some of it has to do with the site and and what their particular skill sets are and, um, and what the vision is uh, for the property. You know, D David Kidd, you know, you, if you're moving sand, you're either going to cut it or fill it, right? You're going to chop some sand, you know, down or fill some sand up. And I think David and his team are, are at their best when they're cutting a little bit. If they have to shave a little off, you know, a mound. Um, and, and and that's a that maybe a, a gross generalization. But, you know, Bill and Ben, if they have to just fill a little bit, it's pretty extraordinary what what they could make um so maybe if you're looking at a site you know you might ask yourself is this one that you know needs a little, a little more cutting or, or a little more you know a little more filling i guess just an, an anecdotal story sedge valley when my brother and i hired uh tom doke it it it's the idea there started with uh our questioning if we could grow a resort with non-traditional 18-hole championship routings. We, we, we've seen just how popular the sandbox has become. And we asked ourselves, you know, instead of one par three for five courses, can we have two or three par threes? Can we build a nine-hole course? Can we build a precision course? You know, how can we push the boundaries of, of what, you know, of, of fun and just put fun first? So, when we reached out to Tom on, on Sedge Valley, there was an incredible piece of ground that just didn't feel quite big enough for a traditional length golf course. And I called him and asked, it wasn't offering the job, but I asked, 
if his one shot at Sand Valley were to build a precision golf course, par threes and short par fours, would he do that? And one of the reasons I asked him is I think he's always looking for something that's totally different, you know, something he'd never done before. I think he gets a big kick out of, you know, he did the loop and I thought it would resonate with, with him. And he said he would, he'd absolutely, if that were his one job at Sand Valley, he'd, he'd love to do it. I sent him the topo and his response was uh, a different concept, but, but Sedge Valley, which is uh, a magnificent routing that covers, you know, 6,000 yards and whose par happens to add up to 68. So um, I guess every piece of land and then the mission that we're trying to accomplish, you know, leads to, you know, perhaps a different architect that fits, fits the, the mission, the vision and the ground. Well, because I think a lot of the, you know, talking about Sedge Valley and it kind of transitions into what I wanted to ask you about next anyways, but a lot of the, the feeling I get when I'm at, you know, Dream Golf Properties is it's more of a, a play box, you know, than it is, you know, traditional golf, you know, two par fives, two par threes on each side has to add up to par 72. Like I never, you know, I never walk around Bandon Preserve, you know, with a, with a, with a scorecard and a pencil. Like it just doesn't seem to be, it's, it's just not designed for competitive golf. I don't think and I mean that in the best way. So why not push the boundaries a little bit and, uh, you know, do something different. There's absolutely nothing stopping you from making a, a par 68 and, um, and yeah, you, I guarantee I am uh, Sedge Valley's not built yet, but I guarantee you won't walk around it and be like, gosh, it just. Which I've really needed it to add up to a par seventy-two to for the, to have been a full golf experience. But is that tough to break down though? Like that that perception? No. And 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 here's what I would say. First off, if we weren't telling people it was a par sixty-eight, six thousand yards, nobody would know. They would they would hopefully just say that was fabulous, right? If, if you play uh, Rye or Swinley Forest or West Sussex or many other great golf courses, when, the first time I walked off Swinley Forest. And for years, I didn't know it was a par 68 or 6,000 yards. I just said, I want to go right back to the first tee and do that again. The other thing I would say is if you look at some of the courses my dad's developed, they confirm that people don't note uh, what's peculiar about them. They just note how fun they are. The bat, Look at the scorecard of the back nine at Pacific Dunes. Par three, par three, par five, par four, par three, par five, par four, par three, par five. So is that two, two par fours on the back nine? four par threes on the back nine. I mean, that, that to me, that proves that the scorecard and length are almost irrelevant. You just walk off that 18th hole and you say, that was fun. So take that back nine. And what if you had two 18s like that? Would people complain? That's certainly not. As long as the quality of the holes are excellent and every hole is different, you know, jumping to Cabot Cliffs, six par threes, six par fives, six par fours. You know, again, the, the scorecard is irrelevant. The only thing that matters are, you know, is the quality of the holes high? Are they all different from one another? Are they memorable? Are they fun? And, and are they beautiful? And I think in both case, cases, the answer is yes. And when the answer is yes, nothing else really matters. I think the the landscape also contributes greatly to that. If you're going to play golf along the ground, 
Like the pars, I don't know why the pars of the holes just seem less important to me. You know? Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't explain to you why that is, but I think it's just kind of, it's yeah. I don't know. Maybe you just care a little less about your score when you're trying to be creative with shots, but tell us about, so the, uh, the, the plan for Sedge Valley was in motion. And I know you guys have had a ton to deal with, with a pandemic and construction of golf courses and why timelines changed and what the current uh, project is, uh, that you guys have going up at Sand Valley. Yeah, the timeline changed because none of us knew in you know March and April of last year that the pandemic would prove to be great for golf. And we had to make a decision to accept a grant uh, from the town of Rome to build uh, a large part of Sedge Valley or not. And, you know, we were very nervous. We had no idea, you know, what our business would look like in 2020 or 2021. So we declined that grant, which you know, put off its development for, for several years, uh, you know, as we grow the business organically. So that was sort of point one with was Sedge Valley was postponed, you know, three to five years after it was postponed, you know, Chris and I were talking and uh, not wanting to sit on our hands as, as we're addicted to, you know, creating new golf courses. We, we began to think about what other uh, models we could explore, you know, golf models, but also how how they're financed. A lot of things came together and led to the Lido, which is paid for by its members and is a completely different golf model that doesn't compete with our, you know, the public courses we make for, for the retail golfer. So we thought while we were, in a sense, waiting for Sedge Valley to, to come back, we would stay busy and build something, you know, great. It would be a lot of fun and we thought would would resonate with with our guests and, and members and, and the and the golf world at large. Well, explain for the listeners that aren't familiar what what the Lido is. I I would have to imagine there's a, a lot of golf fans out there that probably don't have a full appreciation for what you're trying to bring to life. And I'm honestly probably one of them as well because uh, I just I, I don't have the, the the I didn't really have the history lesson on it uh, before really speaking to you last month about it. So uh, so explain what it is first and, and how you're how you're going about bringing it to Wisconsin. So in broad strokes, the Lido was a golf club formed in 1914, opened in 1917 uh, on Long Island in in New York. The course was designed by C.B. McDonald, built by Seth Rayner. The property when they uh, arrived on day one was six feet underwater, under sea level. And it was this massive engineering uh, project sort of the shadow creek of its day, where the owner said to McDonald, you know, there's no budget and we want you to come up with your dream golf course, right? Without the constraints of God, sand and money, you could build anything you want. And the Lido is what he built. And it was, um, you know, one of his great masterpieces. The golf course, as we get more and more familiar with it, has so much in common with St. Andrews, where, you know, 13 of the holes here have shared fairways and, and, and greens. You could certainly, when you're out there, feel the spirit, the spirit of St. Andrews and, and the time he spent with old and young Tom Morris, you know, in his formative years. I, I think unlike any other course in the country and, and any of his, you, you really feel that. With some glaring exceptions, like the Channel Hall, which plays over water twice, and the 18th hole, which was designed by Alistair McKinsey and submitted uh, as part of an architectural competition in Country Life magazine. So uh, that's what Lido was. 
hits financial difficulties in the 30s, as many golf clubs and, and courses did. And in 1941, the Navy purchased the property and demolished it as part of the war effort. And it was never rebuilt. After, after the war, it ultimately became a uh, housing development. That's the Lido. About 20 or 25 years ago, some people, probably starting with George Bato, the great McDonald historian, you know, began wondering if it could be restored. And there's a, a, basically a search on for a site uh, to restore it. And it was something my dad was considering in the mid 2000s. He ultimately decided not to and built old McDonald instead, which was Tom Doak's use of the same templates that McDonald used, but but fitted to the ground at old old Mac at Bandit. So now here we are in central Wisconsin. We had a site that fitted perfectly. The wind direction was a perfect match. Tell us about that. Slow down there. The wind rose. I, you, gotta, you blew my mind with the wind rose. You know, whenever we start a golf course, we get the wind data. So there's a rose by month, and it shows the direction and force of the wind on a circular graph, right, for every day, uh, and gives you a very clear picture of what the wind would do month by month. When we looked at the wind data for um, – Lido Beach in Long Island and Rome, Wisconsin, they were almost identical uh, and identical in relation to, you know, the, the cardinal points in the compass. We have this perfect piece of ground where we could lay out the holes, you know, relative to north, south as they were. And it just so happens, and we wouldn't have built the golf course if this weren't the case, that the wind is almost identical in direction and force to what existed what is that? Fifteen hundred miles, whatever, however far away it is on uh, on on Long Island. So that was a serendipitous uh, discovery, because the wind is so important to this golf course. There's not a single tree on the golf course, and the wind just rips through it, and with nothing to obstruct it. So many of the holes run north south, and so you almost always have a cross breeze, which is one of the reasons, or probably the. Yeah, one of the reasons why the course is so wide, you know, just enormously wide fairways, huge greens and shared fairways. In one instance, three, you know, fairways side by side by side, almost 180 yards yards wide. You needed that width uh, because of the wind. So catch me up on how you know, this golf course, it was lost a long time ago how there's data, how there's information on, you know, the, the intricacies of this golf course are probably what defines it, I would imagine. How did you guys go about accumulating this data? And I understand you had some help in that as well. We had tremendous help. Peter Flory is a, um, a banker from Chicago who's a you know golf historian, golf nut, one of the top hickory golfers in the country. At some point, he went down, you know, the rabbit hole of, of studying this golf course. And while he did that, he began rendering the course in a, in a 3D gaming, computer gaming model. And he took his creation and he posted it on Golf Club Atlas and, and elsewhere. And what happened was people started coming to him out of the woodworks with a random photo or an article or some relic that they found in their grandma's basement. And he became this depository because he crowdsourced the Lido. He became this depository of people who just wanted him to win 
ultimately they just wanted to see what it looked like and be able to play it on their computers. And, and I don't think anybody had imagined, you know, using that data to build it, but in, in being so generous with his creation and, and outsourcing all the data came to him and it, it allowed him to amass the greatest collection of, you know, historical artifacts on the Lido. You know, one thing he did was, was take some of those images and seek out their prime source, right, at the historical archives. So if he had a great photo, he went to the archives and made sure he had a copy of the super high resolution photo. So he's a great historian and he, he built the golf course in this model. And Tom Doak, who had been a skeptic of doing this for decades, uh, when he sat down and went through Peter's body of evidence, concluded that there was, in fact, uh, enough to uh, authentically restore this golf course as it was, you know, 80 years ago. It's just wild. And tell us about, uh, you know, the, the bulldozers. How do those work out there? So first off, there's a lot of them. You know, generally we do very little to the ground. And uh, here, we, you know, we have to take, you know, one site and change it into another site, which is the, uh, the Lido. So one thing that's been a major help time-wise uh, as a starting point, another computer whiz on our team, Brian Settle, who worked uh, in the in the maintenance uh, department, took Peter's uh, data in whatever form, you know, gaming format it was in, and translated it into a grading plan. And then we took that grading plan and put it into a robotic GPS-controlled bulldozer who can grade that out to within less than an eighth of an inch. You don't even see the bulldozer tracks. It smooths it out, you know, with, with its blade. Um, so that's a starting point for Tom and Brian Schneider and Renaissance Golf, that we grade in Peter's model, and then it's a starting point. And then they review all the same uh, data that Peter did and check every assumption. And in some cases, we agree that it's, it's pretty darn close, and, and we can at least put in irrigation and then they could finish the work. In other cases, they have draw different conclusions based off of, you know, their expertise. And, uh, but it, it's at least a great starting point and gets us, you know, very close to what it uh, had been and, and, you know, allows Tom and, and Brian and the team to really focus on the finished details and then just making sure every, you know, green and, and bunker is, is perfect. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a historian when it comes to the Lido or really a lot of golf, and I I walk that golf course and I, with at at the risk of overhyping it, we all kind of got in the car and was kind of like kind of a little bit of quiet in the car. And we're kind of like, uh, that that might end up being like one of the best golf courses in the world, right? And he was like, yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing, but I didn't want to say it. Uh, I, I is it the 13th hole that we walked with you that has the the mound that's right of the green with the small bunker in front of it? Is that what I'm picturing? Yeah, the knoll hole. The knoll. Yeah, that which, that hole, which is now seated. That green now has grass on it since your visit, Chris. Well, it, that was like looking at that hole, even just with sand on it. I was like, well, that is just pretty much, and there's an ideal design strategy golf hole. I immediately wanted to hit a golf shot. I wanted to try a bunch of different ways to use that mound right of the hole to get to it, or could I, you know, hold it with a wedge hitting it over that bunker as a shortish hole, if I remember right, like 360 yards or something like that, and. That that to me is just like scratching the the itch of what I think golf is. Kind of back to the original question of navigating your way around the earth, using the earth uh, to try to get this damn thing in the hole, and it, it captured me there. I mean, that was kind of like 
kind of a light bulb moment of, uh, you know, I, I don't get to see a lot of golf courses that are in construction, but just kind of seeing it and seeing it pieced together is, um, it's kind, it's kind of amazing. So that, that I immediately wanted to chat with you about the Lido because I think this is one of the more interesting projects in golf uh, in, in terms of, and I was kind of confused as to what made it so revered. I kind of was, uh, the cynic in me was thinking, oh, just because it was lost, it's it's been overhyped a little bit. But I don't get the sense from talking to you that that's the case or after seeing the site, I don't get the sense that it's overhyped in any way. Is that fair? It is, and I only say that because it's not, you know, our creation, it, it, it's somebody else's. I wouldn't, I guess, brag if, if it was something that, you know, we imagined. Um, th- th- that does exist with a lot of courses out there right now where there are lost courses that were very good, but probably not worth restoring, right? Maybe should be left to history. We're pursuing this because it it was so exceptional. We believe it, it was so good that it is worth bringing back to life because it teaches us, you know, so much about architecture, so much about mcdonald's architecture which had such an incredible impact on all of you know architecture in, in, in america but i think it will stand particularly as we're seeing the work that brian and tom are doing now that it, the holes are beginning to to be finished I, I think it will live up to that hype you know there are 18 holes that are all completely different from one another you know really no weakness and some really strong high notes you know, and it's a very strategic golf course. When you have width and enormous greens and very thoughtful bunkering, you know that that that's where strategy, you know, is is that's that's where you find you know strategy. And depending on where the pin is and the direction of the wind, you know, the, the holes are going to play so differently from from one day to the next. And it's it's really a course you need to think your way around, and one that. It will take you know a long time to to truly under understand and be able to to navigate and uh, appreciate you know the the nuance, but uh, it's it's pretty strong. Well, a couple more here, and we'll let you let you get out of here. But total, let's do total dream scenario, and and I, w- I will ask that you don't risk uh, or don't be fearful of overhyping the future of Sand Valley. But lay out lay out your ideal dream for the next say twenty years at Sand Valley. I, I've heard a number of potential courses thrown out there, and and uh, well, I don't know if you want to share what you guys have in mind for for total number of courses eventually, or the possibilities that you have. But what does the future of Sand Valley look like? Uh, no, it's fun because, I, I, you know, I generally try to stay very disciplined on just focusing on, you know, what's in front of us today and over the next two years. But it certainly is fun to dream about what, what could be. From the golf standpoint, we have enough great land that varies, like different land, great in different ways, but enough great land for eight full length, you know, golf courses. So I, I would love to have between five and eight one thing we say is if we don't think the next course can be better than every course before it, we're not even going to attempt to build it. Right. What's the point? Let's go on to the next site. And, and, you know, let's always strive at least for greatness. So we have great land for, you know, five to eight courses. On on top of that, Chris and I want to go heavy in alternative routings, I, I guess is maybe a clumsy way to say it, you know, part threes, precision courses, nine holes, I guess this is the first we've talked about it, but we're working on, you know, a very family friendly nine hole golf course, six par threes, three short par fours, but one that three, you know, high swing speed scratch golfers would be delighted to play as well. Mixing concepts like that in 
between, in this case, the Lido and Sedge Valley and having a lot of those as well. So if you count each of those as a golf course, you know, why not have 15 total golf courses here at Sand Valley in 20 years? Beyond that, you know, an important part of our vision here, we're just beginning to to put more effort into is restoring this national park, right? We have uh, 13,000 acres that we're actively restoring and we want to get that to 200,000 acres so that Sand Valley is a place for anybody to come and enjoy the wilderness. If you're a golfer and want to walk your way through the dunes that way, great. But if you want to jump on a fat tire bike or bring your binoculars and go hunt for some birds, then we, we want those people to feel welcome here as well. So we're, we're you know, we're also starting to grow uh, the audience of, of, of this beautiful landscape. And, you know, at, at the beginning of this conversation, you, you know, you're, you're asking what is golf and, you know, beyond a teacher, it, it's a, it's a silly excuse to get outside in a beautiful place with your friends or family and have a great walk and, and, and talk and laugh and, and, and joke. Um, but there are other ways to enjoy that landscape as well. And Chris and I really want to um, accommodate some of those other, those other ways. 20 years from now, we want to have a national park with 15 golf courses of various lengths and sizes, but many, many other great activities for the golfer and non-golfer to enjoy uh, as well. Ultimately, we want to bring people together in nature, you know, buddies, families, friends, together in nature, in nature, you know, enjoying wilderness and the outdoors and give them a, an experience to come back to at the end of the day where they could recuperate and be comfortable and talk about their adventures, you know, over a, a nice meal and, and then have a nice, you know, soft bed to rest, rest their head at night. That That's the ultimate vision and, and goal for Sand Valley. Wow. I was going to say, nothing with you guys seems like too big of a dream, though, you know, from from what you guys have accomplished in the last, you know, 25, 30 years and whatnot. It's uh, you almost can't dream too big. But the last one is what any any updates you can give us on on what else is going on in the in the dream golf world outside of, you know, what you're directly responsible for. I know you you mentioned some of the the, you know, the project in California. I've been kind of somewhat closely following the Cool Links project. Uh, What's the status of various potential projects uh, around the world? I don't want to reveal too much because I want to come back on the show. And if, if I if I reveal it all today, you might open invite, that. open but invite. I'll, I'll give you a little teaser. Uh, my dad is working on a project in Scotland and a project in Southern California. Chris and I certainly have our hands full here in Wisconsin, but we're, I guess you'd say, pre-development at a site in Colorado and a site in Florida. And that's really where he and I are going to spend, you know, I think, in that triangle between Florida, Colorado, and, and Sand Valley, we'll have our hands full for the next, you know, decade or two. So that that's where um, all of our efforts and and our, our mind mind space w- will be. And my dad's still very busy, as I said, in California and Scotland, but also maybe uh, some more things to come around Bandon. And I'll, I'll let him speak to those. It's, that's his baby. Well, thanks, Michael, for joining today. This was uh, this was a great insight into you know um, you know ever changing landscape of options for people to go play and experience amazing golf. And 
uh, it, it's one of the things that really gets me excited and, and makes me love golf even more. So uh, thanks for all you all you guys have done for the game and for uh, spending an hour with us sharing some stories. Really greatly appreciate it. Well, we have a ton of fun doing it. We always say if people keep coming back, we'll keep building. So that's our commitment. And, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to come chat with you. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to our next uh, conversation together. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, man. See ya. Bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.